0: and a very good hello and welcome back boys and girls men and women everybody in between even those dudes who wear cargo shorts when it's snowing outside welcome back to the youtube if you happen to be watching on youtube and you can see the slides of the powerpoint or the podcast if you're listening on a podcast or i don't know in case you're a burglar listening outside my window There is a song in my heart and joy in my step because this is one of my very favorite presentations from way back going all the way back to 2015 when it debuted at the manhattan cocktail classic here in unsurprisingly manhattan it was originally called the science of citrus because it was a presentation with some hands-on stuff we had actual little containers of linalool and limonene and decanal and stuff like that that we very very likely should not have had uh, because in high concentrations they're extremely flammable and dangerous but nobody died although the Manhattan Cocktail Classic is no longer with us Uh, the fact that it's no longer with us is in no way related to this presentation But. Because we took out some of the organic chemistry and you're not going to be able to smell any samples, I have retitled it, The Joy of Citrus. And in updating this, I remembered how much I love citrus. So I might do a few more of these ones from the archive. I've got a whole separate other presentation on Curacao. Yeah? Which will be making a guest appearance in this little seminar type podcasty thing. And maybe another one on limoncello and the lemons of the southern italian coasts of which i have material in abundance and indeed as we speak i am drinking a little bit of curacao with ice oh wait a moment i haven't told you who i am don't you know who i am are you just listening to random shit on the internet you're the person that we heard about in that case my name's philip duff I'm a spirits educator, an escaped bartender, former bar owner, I own a liquor brand, I try to help liquor brands not fuck up, but a lot of what I do is education. So I have thought I would take all these old seminars of mine, dust them off, bring them up to date, and give them something that they don't have as they languish unloved at slideshare.net, which is to say an audio commentary. And then I thought to myself, wait a second i could turn this into one of those new podcast things that all the kids are talking about and in like a year or two i'll be able to sell this for 1.2 billion american dollars i should totally do that so i'm going to be describing stuff for those of you that are not watching along on youtube and some of the seminars will be better than this and others there's some great visuals in here so you're definitely missing out uh please like subscribe Touch my bells and buttons, as it were. Follow me. Follow me on YouTube. Follow the podcast. Subscribe to the podcast. Write letters to uh, that chap who's running Apple demanding that the podcast go to the top of the list. Uh, follow me on Twitter, where it's Philip Duff. That's at P-H-I-L-I-P-D-U-F-F. That's right. I'm a single L, Philip. We're a very exclusive crew. Or follow me on the Instagram, if you're slightly younger, which is at Philip S... Duff, that's P-H-I-L-I-P-S, Duff. Yes, I'll explain that story one of these days. And if you're the youngest of all and you're on TikTok, please stop listening to this right away. I hate you. Um, You're contributing to moral decline and you're making me feel old. All right. Are we ready to dive into the joy of citrus? Yes, yes, we are, Philip. Please. All right, here we go. So... It's not a philosophical question, but what is a lemon? It's a member of the citrus family and they're called hesperidia, which are, broadly speaking, fruits with juice-filled vesicles, meaning little bags, that are connected and held together by what's called the pith, the albedo, and that's all inside a skin that's got lots and lots of concentrated oils. That layer uh, nearest the top of the skin of a citrus is called the flavido. So that's what, four new words? Hesperidia, vesicle, albedo and flavido. What they're not is cars. I just like this example. It's actually from Doyle Dane Burnback, one of the legendary ad agencies from the Mad Men era of new york and they wanted to advertise Volkswagens. um you can imagine that selling a german car in america shortly after world war ii was not that easy of a sell so they came up with an ad that just said lemon which if you were watching on youtube you could see just imagine a volkswagen with the word lemon underneath that's pretty much it and what they're trying to point out is that each car undergoes nine thousand quality checks before it leaves the factory in germany so a volkswagen is a lemon meaning a shitty car that only passes 8999 of them because then they'll reject us and send it back to be fixed the use incidentally of the word lemon to describe a shitty car started off in england and seems to have sort of been exported to america which is where Uh, England dumped a, a lot of their shit frankly let's be clear but hey moving on moving on back to the main event you probably think a lemon looks a lot like what you're looking at now a great big yellow slightly grainy skin roundy thing but lemons are different all over the world for instance you've probably had a caipirinha cocktail Or a caipurusca the vodka one or a dawa which is kind of how they make it in africa with honey but here's the thing when caipirinhas became popular in the 80s in europe i mean they've always been popular in their native country of brazil everyone started making them with limes however because of mistranslations with spanish and latin languages in general the word limon, which they use can mean lemon or lime and the original ingredient in the caipirinha is a limon subtil which is actually a green skinned lemon so we've been making it wrong all that time bit late to apologize now but hey sorry lemons of course can be sour but they can also be really sweet there are some varieties of lemons with uh, peels so thin you don't even really need to peel them you can eat them with a knife and fork and there are some so bitter that you really can't eat them at all and they're only good for goats and making curacao. Have you ever wondered why English sailors and English people in general called limeys? Well, the thing was, when you were travelling off around the world, uh, committing horrendous acts of genocide, conquering countries, plundering their gold, enslaving their people, all that sort of thing. All the things that uh, England did and let's be honest, most of the European nations. It would be nice if most of your sailors didn't die. But unfortunately, that was not the case. A long sea journey might take two years before the boat returned to its uh, home port and in those two years the fatality rate among the crew could be 90 percent can you imagine that you'd set sail with hundred sailors and you come back with hundred sailors too but 90 of them would be new this was not generally regarded as great HR practice even in the 1600s and it was realized fairly early on that citrus juice was an anti-scorbutic meaning you would not die If you took it, right, you would not die of a deficiency of vitamin C, which usually starts manifesting itself as bleeding from the gums and whatnot. And if it's left untreated and you don't have any lemons or limes or grapefruits or sauerkraut or something, you die. Well... its uh, incredible wisdom the Royal English Navy decided to buy lime juice for its sailors instead of lemon juice but unfortunately lime juice contains much less vitamin C than lemon juice so it was a much less effective anti-scorbutic for those poor sailors and they got nicknamed limeys into the bargain now citrus like love is all around and they're added in both real and synthetic amounts to almost anything this is why toilets generally smell a bit citrusy they tend to put aldehydes which are synthetic versions of citrus aromas in bleach because no one's found a natural citrus aroma that can actually survive in bleach because it's bleach on a happier note A much 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 fancier kind of aldehyde uh, is what's called chanel number five chanel number five is seen as the first great aldehyde perfume which means it's using synthetic compounds to emulate what fresh citrus would have done because the first perfumes first fragrances interestingly enough were unisex men and women wore them and they were the same and they are generally lemon and orange based. Now, just to take it to cocktails for a minute, citrus, as anyone who's ever worked in a bar and uh, maybe even walked in a bar knows, citrus dominates. It is in 64 of the 100 most searched for cocktails on the authorities of website differenceguide.com. At least it was in 2021. Uh, as we speak, possibly due to supply chain issues or maybe the war in Ukraine, who knows, the case, the cost of a case of limes in America is something like $115 and it's usually something like $30 or $40. Uh, it's a huge expense and you've got to juice them. And places like Tommy's in San Francisco, the place where the Tommy's margarita was created by Julio Bermejo, actually juice them all to order. So citrus is all around uh it's a pain in the arse it's also delicious and uh, we're going to explain exactly why that is as we go on here you kind of can't get round using citrus in gin and tonics this presentation was originally sponsored by a gin brand so you know there's a good bit of G&T stuff in here Uh, but there's a very good reason for that which we'll come to probably on the last slide it's not merely decorative to have ices and slices in your G&T it also makes it an even more well-rounded drink and apparently now if I'm looking at this slide you can get gin and tonic cupcakes fuck it of course you can you can get everything in a cupcake it's probably cruise missile cupcakes and we have all of this, all of this to thank is one variety of citrus, citrus medica, the citron. It's from a single valley all the way back in Southeast Asia on the border between India and Burma. All other citrus stem from this. It is the er citrus, the O G. It's the old school of citruses. And in my curacao presentation, there's actually a photo of me fanboying one of these, a citrus medica at the Bronx Botanical Garden here in New York, because I kind of had written that presentation and given it, but it didn't occur to me that they were still around, right? Like dinosaurs aren't still around, you know, we don't see ichthyosaurs in the sea or fucking archaeopteryx flapping above our heads. But I, there I am strolling through the Bronx Botanical Garden and I see a tree with flowering citrus medica, the citron. I almost cried. It was really cool. It was like going to the zoo and they've got a live T-Rex. That was really, really, really cool. So let's just interrogate a little bit why we love citrus before we start breaking it down. On our tongues, we can taste sweet and sour, bitter salty and umami those are the official tastes right there's some arguments as to whether we should have some more official things that we taste on our tongue there's a strong lobby for iron believe it or not that's why we can taste blood and coins so effectively (laughs) and by the way let's just banish that fucking idea that you taste sweet at the front and bitter at the back and umami in the middle and all that that is all balls that has been knowingly embellished and mistranslated by a certain wine glass company that wants to sell you $45 fucking wine glasses but it's all a mistranslation from a theology student not a biologist not a scientist a theology student's thesis which when it was translated to english the, the translations switch the meaning of the words from there may be these sites on your tongue. It would reward further research to this is where you taste that. So citrus has sugar in it, of course, because it's juice. Now, different citruses have varying amounts of juice, right? And uh, Different amounts of sweetness. The sweet orange, citrus sinensis, is obviously sweeter than the Persian lime right Uh, ruby red grapefruit is a bit sweeter than a regular yellow grapefruit which is itself a bit more sweeter than probably something else but you get what I'm saying there's sugar in citrus there's also our vitamin c and when we taste something sour you can be pretty sure we're getting vitamin c now we don't love of sour taste, but we don't totally hate them either because we know on some instinctive level that we're getting vitamin C and we need vitamin C. Why do we need vitamin C? I will tell you why we need vitamin C because next to goats, we suck. Right? Goats are better than people for many, many, many reasons that I won't go into here. But one reason is that a goat, one goat working alone, can produce enough vitamin C itself naturally for 1300 people it might take a village to raise a child but it only takes one goat to take care of an entire village full of people's vitamin c needs right we cannot manufacture our own vitamin c so we need it and therefore we have some kind of a love of sourness now umami is a japanese word meaning delicious essence and you could say that it's the tongue taste that is savory and here's something to make your socks fall down oranges have more umami flavor more glutamate per 100 grams than beef or chicken grapefruits have more than oysters or mushrooms so just for the people uh, at home who might have had a drink or two already we've now got citrus containing sweet tastes containing sour tastes and containing savory tastes now they don't contain salty tastes at least not unless you've really fucked up but especially in those peels citrus contains bitter tastes too so a citrus will supply four of the five things that we can taste on our tongues that's pretty fucking amazing and now let's go off on another little bit of a tangent uh we may be and I don't mean when I say we I don't mean just you and me I mean the human race we might be losing our natural aversion to bitter tastes what it is we evolved them because back when we were hunter-gatherers and even when we were uh, farmers bitter things more often than not were bad they were poisonous right and the reason we are here Is because our stupider ancestors said oh I don't know what that is I'll just give it a go and they died right the ones that didn't just give it a go are our great 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 grandparents but as you will have noticed in the bar in the supermarket at Starbucks we are consuming a lot more bitter flavors these days because the world is safe we have things like sell-by dates and you hardly ever get poisoned from the supermarket unless you shop at the dodgy one across the street from me, in which case you really should only buy things that come pre-packaged. as bad, bad. But we're all drinking not just coffee, but we're drinking espresso. We're not just drinking beer, which by definition is bitter because of the hops. We're drinking IPAs. So there appears to be some scientific evidence that we are losing our aversion to bitter flavours. But this is all by way of saying that a citrus gives you four of the five tastes you can have on the tongue and that's not bad now let's return to the citrus that is clearly my hero citrus medica why is it called citrus well it comes from the greek word meaning pine cone see that because it's this knobbly lemon-like fruit so okay, I could kind of get if you'd never travelled very often that you would see that and say, okay, you know what? I am going to use the Greek word for pine cone here, and this is this is how it's going to be. So the word citrus comes from that Greek word kedros, and citrus medica is the great 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 and here's the thing. Citrus, from Citrus Medica all the way down, has the urge to merge, right? It's heard the jingle to mingle. It is a bit of a whole All it wants to do is reproduce and hybridise. And every time it reproduces, it doesn't care with who or how. It grafts, it hybridises. So we have dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of slightly different and sometimes radically different citruses. In fact, the mere fact that Citrus medica did hybridize, sometimes it happens spontaneously, sometimes you can uh, encourage it a lot with a little bit of radiation, we'll hear about that in a moment. But the fact that it hybridizes so easily is why we have two other parental types of citrus. So as well as Citrus medica, we have what you or I would call a mandarin, citrus reticulata. And rounding it out, we have the pomelo, which depending on who you ask is called citrus grandis or citrus maxima. And they all occur in a broad sweep from India slash Burma to Southeast Asia. Now, our fourth contender is what's called the papeda which is citrus micrantha or citrus hystrix depending on who you ask you see how hard this is even the scientists can't agree it's not eaten all that much but it provides shall we say rootstock for other important hybrids like the macroot, which was formerly known as the kaffir lime the yuzu and the sudachi so this is where shit's gonna get real so bear with me we're just gonna go through a few of the basics When you mix the pomelo, that's the grapefruit-like one on the right, with the mandarin, which is the mandarin-like one in the middle, you get a bitter orange, citrus oranthium. This is also known as the Valencia orange or the bigarad. It's used for jams and marmalades and lots of other things. We'll see that in a moment. If you then mix the lemon, citrus limon, Oh, sorry. If you mix the citrus orantium, the bitter orange, with the citrus medica, you get citrus limon, which is a lemon. How cool is that? Within the original three. With a single two way hybridization, you get the bitter orange and you get the lemon. Amazing. What else can you make with these building blocks? Well, I'm glad you asked. So the macroot, citrus hystrix formerly known as the Cafe, if that mates with a citrus medica the citron it makes the key lime citrus orantifolia now here's where it gets really complicated you might want to start taking notes and it doesn't matter if you're watching the youtube i'm too lazy to have explained it visually much better than this but the key lime became very very popular in Persia in the Middle East but it wasn't called the key lime it's called the Persian lime when it was brought to America and it began to be cultivated in America things kicked off in the Florida Keys right because your OG genocidal world uh, explorers like Christopher Columbus always carried a lot of citrus with them for their crew so the crew would not die and what they would do is the crew would eat the citrus and not die and then Everywhere along the way, they would stop and plant the seeds so that when they were sailing back a year later, there'd be citrus trees that they could stop off at and harvest so the crew could eat that citrus on the way home and not die on the way home either. When Chris Columbus and everybody else brought the Middle Eastern Persian limes to America, because they started in the Florida Keys, it was renamed the Key Lime. All right. You with me? Now, if you cross a key lime with a lemon, what you get is what we now call a Persian lime. I know it's fucked up because what it is, there was a grower called Bears, B-E-A-R-S-S, in America. And in 1895, he did exactly that. He took the key lime and he hybridized it with the lemon because he wanted something larger and juicier with uh, thinner skin and seedless and that's what he created so what we call a lime today what you squeeze in your tommy's margarita is a bear slime which was renamed a persian lime i get it it's not easy this stuff is not easy but just bear in mind a lime is essentially over the whole world a bear slime and if you see a cocktail from before about the 1930s definitely from before the 1920s that contains lime juice it was certainly definitely key lime juice so if you want to make it make it with key lime juice from those little uh, well everyone knows what key limes are all right let's keep going the sweet orange you all want to know where oranges come from don't you we're fairly sure it's a cross between the pomelo citrus grandis and the meticulata now Here's a more recent one. Most of these uh, hybridizations happened hundreds of years ago, with the exception of the uh, bear's Persian lime. But grapefruits are only like, what, 320 years old? They were in the West Indies because all the sailors had gone there to try and uh, plunder as much as they could. Always in search of booty, those sailors. Boom, boom. And it hybridizes across between a pomelo and the sweet orange. Now, you've probably seen ruby red grapefruits in America, and you see lots of them. They're like the standard grapefruit. Why are there so many ruby reds in America and not anywhere else, or at least not in such abundance? Well, the reason is the ruby red was created as a hybrid. Growers in Texas in 1929 blasted existing fruits with radiation to try and get hybrids to form and they did don't worry it's perfectly safe to eat ruby red grapefruits or zest them or whatever the fuck But it was patented then as well. It might be the first patented and trademarked citrus So nobody else Presumably who didn't pay for the privilege could grow ruby red grapefruit and therefore They got an advantage in the rest of the world grapefruits are yellow and this of course is as uh, as God intended so Lots to digest there. Eh, See what I did? But let's move on to the next slide. There is, of course, a lot of different factors at work in what winds up on your wholesale price list, in your supermarket and indeed in your drink. There are many, 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 many more varieties of citrus that you have never heard of and may never see because the supply chain just doesn't want to take a risk on them. Right. You don't see a lot of yuzu or tangar or calamansies around. Right. When was the last time you saw a bergamot fruit? You just don't see them. And there's, in fact, a citrus research lab an orchard attached to the University of California, Davis in America, which is the world's oldest and most famous repository of different types of citrus. And they're continually developing new and exciting forms of citrus and offering them to growers and distributors who frankly say no i think we'll just grow oranges instead so do know there's a whole world out there and if you can find a specialty market you might be able to enjoy the playfulness of an australian finger lime or the tanginess of a macroot, formerly known as kaffir or indeed the well-known earl grey like aroma of bergamot or chinoto oranges but let's keep going the orange the lemon, the lime, the grapefruit, they give and they ask so little in return. Take the case of citrus aurantium, the bitter orange. This is responsible for orange flower water, without which no Ramos gin fizz. And orange flower water was also an ingredient in capillare syrup, also flavoured with maidenhair fern, which is thought to have been possibly used in one of the early iterations of the collins cocktail which is created with geneva in new york and then localized be made with english gin in london where it also got its name the colin mr collins gin punch named after a waiter at limmer's club in london but citrus aurantium is a giving and deep spirit it also gives us neroli oil which is what you get when you take the essential oils from the skin of the bitter orange and distill them neroli oil is uh, an almost ubiquitous base in some of the world's most expensive perfumes but that's not all neroli oil is also one of the key ingredients in coca-cola and probably some other colas as well let's be honest but it's a really big deal and finally, a cultivar of uh, citrus aurantium, curasuviensis, is what gave us curacao. I, and I am, as we speak, drinking a curacao. <laughs> what it was, the Spanish had uh, taken over the island known as Curacao and a very long time ago i think it was uh, 1500 and being good world traveling pirate enslavers they planted some citrus there and they planted the citrus that they had right which was the bitter orange the bigger the valencia orange and they kind of left it there right they left it there on curacao And by the time they came back and tried it again, decades later, it had hybridized and hybridized and hybridized to the green fruit. You could see if you had had the presence of mind to go on the YouTube channel that was inedible. I mean, humans couldn't eat it. The only people who ate it were the goats and the goats probably didn't enjoy it very much either. But this orange called the Laraha was packed with very, 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 very deep and esoteric aromas in its essential oils and if you peeled it and dried the peel and macerated the peel and distilled the peel and maybe combined that peel with a maceration and you chucked in some sugar well you had a pretty damn good liqueur you had curacao the big hitters of the curacao category Cointreau, Grand Marnier all started out as Curaçaos. They used to mention on the label before breaking away to rebrand themselves just as we are Cointreau, we are Grand Marnier. But they were and are technically Curaçaos. Where would we be in a world without Curaçao? It would be a world without margarita, a world without sidecars, a world without red lions well actually very few people have heard of the red lion which has grand marnier in it but there you go look it would just be a world you wouldn't want to live in so thank god uh for those adventurous and yet genocidal people who planted citrus trees on the island of curacao all those years ago and if you want to try it as legit as possible there is a brand called senior curacao based on the island that's says to this day that they only use the native La Raja oranges and they do it in the old-fashioned way and etc etc and so forth and so forth now this is where i have an appeal to the public which is you if you were at that original seminar which i taught with all these very cool sem- samples that we're not going to be able to smell today in 2015 in new york at and Club, can you tell me why on earth the next slide has a photo of um Charlie Sheen above theories of olfaction? I have no idea and I didn't write myself any notes and if you are able to unravel that perhaps you could also tell me why on the next slide it is a picture of Charlie Sheen and a silhouette of a stripper dancing on a pole. Answers on the back of a postcard please to Philip Duff care of New York, New York USA. Assuming nobody can tell me we're going to skip on to the next slide when it comes to olfaction which is the fancy word for smelling we have to throw down a little bit of knowledge first one is that we essentially taste by smelling it is by far the overwhelming defining factor in what we say is the taste of something the aroma our tongues are very blunt instruments at the best of times they can taste five things we can discern something like 9,000 different molecules of aroma, And even when we are eating, those molecules of aroma go retronasally up the back of our throat, into our nose and from there into the olfactory epithelium, and from there to the olfactory bulb and all that kind of thing. So basically, it's all about smelling. Three percent of our entire DNA codes a thousand genes that let us discern aroma molecules. But would you be surprised if I told you we're not totally definitively sure how we smell? We are in a time when there are remote-controlled drone rovers on Mars, but we're not totally sure how we smell poo. It's mad. And that's why I loved uh, researching the seminar. The dominant theory, which is the one that everyone accepts, even though it's got a few holes in it, is what is called the lock and key theory. And there's a really shitty graphic on that slide. If you're looking at the slide, by the way, I want you to know that I've really upped my PowerPoint game in the last seven years. It'll be much better. And what that says is, if you smell a volatile, a volatile is a molecule of something that's just floating around in the air. Let's say it's a molecule of Indole. Now, you've never heard of indole, but it's also in many of the fanciest perfumes that you've saved up with because you wanted to sleep with somebody. And you probably don't want to hear that it's actually the molecule most closely associated with the smell of poo. They put it in perfumes, not as a top note, I don't think that would sell, but they put it in there as a kind of an animalistic note. And then they build on top of it something like delicate, maybe citrusy flavors, maybe a bit of vanilla or something like that. So, At first you smell that, you know, citrusy, vanilla whatever aroma, you're like, oh, nice, nice. But your monkey brain at the back of your head smells that poo and it goes, ooh, bit of an animal. Ooh, might be wild. Anyway, I'm getting off the beaten track here. That molecule floats into your nose and it sets off a reaction that sends a message to your olfactory bulb. We'll talk about that message in a moment. But like I said, there's a theory of olfaction that's the lock and key or the shape theory. And then there's a theory, which is the vibrational theory that was propounded by an Italian scientist, great writer, called Luca Turin. And his idea was that molecules vibrate at different speeds in the infrared zone. And that that is why isomers of the same molecule can smell different like there's an uh, two isomers of carvone molecule one of them smells like caraway and the other one smells like mint they are theoretically identical unfortunately luca's theory also has holes in it so we kind of depend on the lock and key theory but we spoke a moment ago about the olfactory bulb so once that molecule has floated into your nose and it sent those messages. It's, it's set off those reactions that send messages to your olfactory bulb. That's when it gets interesting. Your olfactory bulb is part of your animal nature. It's the bit that didn't evolve. The limbic nervous system. It's ancient, animalistic, it's instinctive, and it's where memory and emotion lives. Mm. That's why you could taste something. And try to work out mm, yeah, mm, if you like it, if you've had it before. But you can smell one thing. Maybe a molecule of poo. And immediately be transported to that time when uh, you pooed yourself on the, uh, the ferry on the Irish Sea. Not that I ever I did, did that. never Never did that. But it's such a powerful system. It goes right to an ancient part of our brain where there's no conscious thought. Just reaction. You're smelling something and you're like, oh, wait a second. That happened. This happened. Oh, my God. The hippocampus and the amygdala round out the olfactory bulb, by the way. And the olfactory bulb is kind of a way station. Once the messages reach the olfactory bulb, it starts sending out corresponding messages to the hippocampus and the amygdala. And they're the ones that registers emotion and they look in the memory like have we smelled this before what happened when we were smelling this who was there how did you feel this is exploited in many different ways in the modern life and I like to give the example of Langham hotels whose London branch houses the world-famous artesian bar but Langham hotels want to have regular customers which makes a lot of sense because their rooms cost about nine million dollars a night and in every every Langham in the whole world smells the same. When you walk into a Langham, it reminds you of the last time that you walked into a Langham, because they have the same scent which they use in the same concentration in every single Langham hotel. It is by law required to mention Marcel Proust at this time. A uh, French writer, amazing writer, wrote an enormously long, and detailed and um, to be brutally honest quite dull book or series of books called a la recherche du temps perdu in search of lost times and it all kicks off with him eating a madeleine right which is that kind of french pastry that you can see there he bites into it and suddenly he is transported back as if he was there he can and it's all because that aroma has accessed his limbic nervous system and hold up memories bright and fresh and new from his uh amygdala and hippocampus as if it was yesterday now i told you this presentation was sponsored by a gin company so we kind of went off in a bit of a gin rant here and i think that's a gin and tonic candle or maybe it's oh it's coffee mug that says i'd rather be drinking gin and tonic oh my god you're hilarious Oh, no way. You'd rather be drinking gin and tonic than coffee. There are people who probably bought that mug unironically. But let's talk about gin. Initially, of course, gin wasn't gin. Gin was Geneva. And Geneva is more like whiskey. Gin began to grow up in England after it became popular in the very early 1700s. England had a Dutch king. He banned imports of liquor. Everyone started distilling. That king lowered the license cost for distilling. So everyone started trying to make gin and they all sucked, right? Because they were trying to make Geneva and Geneva's like whiskey and it's really hard to do. So they did what distillers always do is cover their mistakes. They put in 47 times, and I'm being literal here, more juniper than was ever used in Geneva. They tried to cover it up with sugar as well because their base spirit was not good. They were trying to make whiskey and they sucked. They were so bad. This went on for a good bit and citrus was very, very expensive. You can't really grow it in England or Ireland or Holland. People didn't have glass houses, there was no um, no electricity to heat a, heat a, heat a room or whatever. And the ships weren't fast enough to get citrus back to England before it had rotted. So neither Geneva nor gin initially had citrus in it. And even if citrus was available, it would have been like way, way too expensive. All this stuff was. So some of the world's best selling gins like Gordon's and Tanqueray do not contain any citrus. Citrus is a relatively new botanical in gin. However, two things happen in the world of gin that proved to be revelatory. One was, in 1830, an Irish former excise uh, inspector, Anus Coffey, registered the patent still or column still, a continuous still. Now, we're not getting into the whole thing. Did he invent continuous distilling? Almost certainly not. But he was the first to really register it. He gets the fame. And all the English gin distillers, who were probably... Sick of making a base spirit that sucked, jumped on it. And they switched from trying to make a whiskey like base spirit, i.e., Geneva, to this new neutral spirit. They kept using 47 times more juniper. And eventually, they weaned themselves off the sugar that was old Tom Gin to English dry gin around the turn of the century, around 1900. And that is kind of what took over the whole world. In the last couple of decades of the 1800s ships became fast enough to get citrus back to the UK fast enough that you could use citrus maybe dried as a botanical and the cost went down right people became able to transport faster because of trains people had greenhouses so citrus peels found their way into botanicals where they're fabulously useful for a lot of different uses for instance gin and tonic is a fine drink because you've got the tonic as an anti-malarial and just like citrus tonic is sweet from sugar sugar is added to it and it's bitter from the quinine that is indeed the ingredients derived from cinchona bark that makes tonic anti-malarial Adding lime juice or lemon juice is an anti-scorbutic, right? It means you're not going to get scurvy. Like, you're winning everywhere here. Gin started off as the worst low-class drink you could possibly have. But due to a few changes in the law that put the gin trade in the control of large, wealthy people paying lots of taxes and donating lots of money to political parties which more or less happened after the third tippling act in 1751 and when england began expanding its colonies and all that sort of thing gin became a gentleman's drink right and the queen was drinking gin because her subjects were selling shitloads of gin and putting lots of tax money in her coffers that's why gin to this day certainly has a bit of a an upmarket vibe to it in a lot of countries around the world Imagine a GT and without lemon or lime. You would have the bitter of the tonic, you would have the sweet of the tonic, and you would have the ethanol strength of the gin. But with lemon or lime, you've got the bitter of the tonic, the sweet of the tonic, the strength of the gin, and you've got the sourness of the lemon. You've got four tongue tastes instead of three. And of course, you're getting more depth and complexity because you've also probably squeezed in that lemon wedge or lime wedge or something like that so you're getting some of the oils from the who remembers what it was called what's that layer near the top of the skin the flavedo. albino is the pith and flavedo i don't know if that's how you say it but i just i, I, I like saying it Flavedo is supplying all those concentrated delicious oils during both uh perfume making and gin distilling there are debates of does citrus peel actually anchor other fragrances does it help other fragrances to be less volatile and then stay in the gin flavor profile itself opinions vary here And we're going to wrap things up by just pointing out, I remember, I remember it like it was yesterday, drinking with young Dave Arnold, and he had done lots and lots of tests because he's a massively nerdy dude. And he found out that lemon juice is good for like 24 hours, provided you refrigerate it and all that sort of thing. But lime juice starts to degrade and have a significant difference in flavor after just four hours. But here's the... Kicker. What's the kicker, Philip? Here's the kicker. The kicker, since you asked, is that aged lime juice is preferred to freshly squeezed lime juice when it's a blind test. Now, if you squeeze a lime to order in front of somebody and you let them taste it and then you say, hey, taste this, and you take out some four hour old lime juice, they're still going to prefer the fresh stuff. But when it's a blind test and they don't have you in front of them and all that kind of thing, they just get three samples to try. Everyone prefers aged lime juice. Interesting, right? Oh, look at that. We have come to the end of this journey. But don't fear, don't cry. No, please don't cry. I'll be back. If you're on YouTube, there's lots more to watch, such as my How the Global Drinks Business Works seminar uh the Geneva history and mixology one that's very good and also some true cracking classics such as off-duty brand manager walks into a bar and off-duty bartender walks into a bar which are actually little animated movies for which I wrote what is laughably called the script and there's some other weird stuff there that I put up years ago that I'm not going to bother taking down. but I'm going to be adding little little seminars like this quite regularly I might interview people right Uh, most people are horrendous and I'd prefer to avoid them but every now and then there's somebody that I can tolerate that I might interview we might have a little chat over uh, a drink or two so yeah once more thank you for joining me on this journey I hope your your drive wasn't too long or your workout too arduous or that it didn't take you too long to clean your bathroom or whatever else act of desperation drove you to to listen to Uh, if you really did want to learn about citrus, feel free to drop me a line if you have any questions to philip at liquidsolutions.org. That's P-H-I-L-I-P at L-I-Q-U-I-D-S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-S dot O-R-G. This webinar is also available as a podcast. It's called The Philip Duff Show. You can find it on Spotify. You can find it on iHeartRadio. Uh, It should be on Apple, but those guys are fucking slow. So just find it on one of the other fucking free services you don't pay for, you freeloading asshole. And then follow me. Follow me on YouTube. Follow me on LinkedIn. Follow me on Facebook, where unsurprisingly, I'm Philip Duff. Follow me on Twitter, where I'm also Philip Duff, P-H-I-L-I-P-D-U-F-F. And on Instagram, because some carpet-bagging prick got in there before me, I am Philip S. Duff. That's P-H-I-L-I-P-S-D-U-F-F. And I urge you now to rejoice in the glory this is citrus. Be it a lemon in your G&T, the lime you juice for your Tommy's margarita, the lemon you crush For a nice two-to-one sidecar with cognac and just a spoon of sugar. Otherwise, Joaquin Simo will get angry at you. Whether it's a little cinnamon-dusted orange with your shot of tequila, or be it a mojito because you're just a basic bitch, enjoy the gift that is citrus. And me... Actually, I think I'm just going to have a lemon zest on my martini. Thanks very much. Bye.